Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. My sense is that depending on the country and depending on the business, you will see hybrid models emerge. They already are emerging and some will have much more traction than others. I would see a lot of partnerships being formed between online companies and offline retailers to really manage the customer experience to be much more smoother and much more productive going forward. There are more than 8 million dynamic pages that run on Lenovo.com, where the majority of shoppers go to buy their products. It is a massive e-commerce platform that has to work for more than 1 billion website visitors per year. Ajit Shivadasan is the vice president and general manager of Lenovo. And even though managing those pages is part of his job, what he's more interested in is making sure that those pages are offering relevant content and an efficient experience to a new generation driving e-commerce growth. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Ajit explains why figuring out what content is relevant to Gen Z will be the driving factor in how successful your e-commerce platform will be. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey everyone, this is Stephanie Postles, your host of Up Next in Commerce. Ajit, how's it going? Good. Thank you for getting me on the show, Stephanie. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background at Lenovo. You've been there 15 years, right? Close to, yeah. This is my 15th year, yeah. So I'm sure a lot has changed since you joined the company back then? Yeah, I mean, um, I joined Lenovo in 2006 uh, and came to Lenovo to build a consumer brand online. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when I joined, we didn't have much of a infrastructure or even sales. We were in a very limited uh, set of countries. Um, we were actually in four countries and we probably had a very small amount of revenue. Uh, since then, obviously, we have scaled the business about 10x on revenues and profits have grown about 10x. And we have scaled from four countries to 35 countries. Uh, and in the process, uh, we have seen several acquisitions. Uh, we, we acquired the Motorola brand. We acquired the System X brand. So we have had to integrate all of those businesses. Uh, so Lenovo has gone from a, a company that's sold PCs to being a company that basically is trying to drive intelligent transformation for its uh, enterprise customers and for its consumers around the world. Um, obviously, we have a footprint in more than 165 countries. So it's exciting. Uh, you know, when I joined the company, we were number six uh, or so in the world, and obviously. We've been number one uh, for a number of years now and have a significant market share in the PC space. And we continue to make progress in the data center space, which we acquired from IBM. And the Motorola phones, uh, you know, you might have seen some of the latest phones that we introduced. We were the first ones with the foldable phone. 
uh, that was a take on the razor phone, the iconic razor phone. So yeah, I mean, it's been very exciting. Uh, we have obviously enjoyed our ride. I'm very excited because we get to catch a number of customers on Lenovo.com and really bring the technology to life uh, and the brand to life using the uh, platform we have. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a good ride. That's awesome. And what does your day-to-day look like at Lenovo? Um, so look, I, uh, I manage the platform for Lenovo, so which is basically Lenovo.com. And since it serves all of our stakeholders, we have the Lenovo.com footprint in more than 90 countries. Uh, so I have to manage both the sales side, which is primarily a combination of B2C and SMB. Uh, and then I have to manage the enterprise side of the customers, so mostly B2B customers. Uh, that buy from us using a procurement type of strategy where we actually service them one-on-one. So I have the sales part, which is basically running the whole end-to-end business from all the way from marketing, uh, CRM, UX, UI, design, sales and marketing, phone sales, uh, to really even trying to help with the supply chain piece, working closely with our supply chain organization. But then the other side is really trying to figure out how to uh, position Lenovo.com to become the kind of the brand voice and figure out how we bring to life all of the innovation and the products and the enterprise strategy we have for the stakeholders that come to Lenovo.com around the world. We get over a billion people coming to the website any given year. So it is a pretty substantive property. And so we have a ton of work that we need to do to manage all of those aspects that take care of basically all of the customer needs we have. Wow. What are some of the key learnings? when it comes to moving globally. So it started out, I think in 1985 and it was just a reseller in China, right? And then now it's a global company. What has that transition been like? And what have you learned in the process as you open up new countries and start selling there? Yeah, you know, when I joined, obviously my journey beyond Lenovo was a gateway. I was at Gateway for five years. So I've been in the PC space for about 20 years. And what what you have to really understand is all the, transitions that have happened in the business model. You know, when, when I started, you know, internet was relatively new and people kind of used it as a very, very siloed organization that was doing just the phone and the, on the, and the web. So it was very limited. But today, as you know, you know, 70% of the traffic that comes to the website is, uh, you know, mobile traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the paradigms have shifted quite a bit. So the business model transformation that has happened over the last 15 years has been interesting. Uh, and what you see is initially when we started, you know, a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of our colleagues around the world were maybe a little apprehensive. They were worried about things like conflict. Uh, they were worried about issues like pricing and things like that. And what you have noticed as things have evolved is what you find is that there is a very complementary system. A number of our customers that are very sophisticated, very technology focused, innovation focused, want to buy online. Uh, they want to be able to customize their products. They want a full breadth of products. And then there is a bunch of customers who would like to go to retail stores, look at our products, touch, understand it a little bit better before they actually make a purchase. So what we have found out is, though we had a lot of skepticism, maybe even like six, seven years ago, that has changed into people now trying to figure out how to leverage the business models, including connecting uh, retail and the offline presence we have. Uh, how do we get our enterprise customers the best experience possible? How do we make sure the supply chain is responsive? Uh, How do we give them more and more capabilities that allow them to buy products on credit, uh, allow them to buy using a subscription type of service, give customized services and content for SMB customers? So, I mean, if you really think about it, the evolution has been quite interesting. 
And look, day to day, there's tons of things that you need to do because it's a fast-paced, technology-driven, very innovation-focused space. And people like Amazon and others, they are really driving the paradigm as far as online commerce is concerned. So it's not sufficient for us to just look at our traditional competitors. We also have to understand that the customers are getting sophisticated and their expectations are much, much higher than what they used to be. So in many ways, the decision to go into a country now is much more driven by the customers than it is even driven by our stakeholders, direct stakeholders. Uh, and when I say stakeholders, internal folks, because customers really demand that you actually have an online presence and they really want to transact with you online. So uh, the transition has been interesting, but I think it's accelerating and the business models are getting very complex. And our ability to actually react to them fast is going to be critical as we, as we move into the future. Yeah, completely agree. So I heard that you have 8 million dynamic and other pages on the on Lenovo.com. Maybe it's more at this point compared to when I heard that stat. How do you keep up with all the pages that you have behind the scenes being custom, depending on who's coming, depending on what country they're coming from? How do you make sure that it doesn't turn into a black box, kind of like an algorithm when it starts getting too much stuff in it? You're like, I don't even know what's happening behind the scenes anymore. How do you keep up with yeah, the pace? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is um, automated. Uh, if you really think about bulk of the products, I mean, if you, uh, I'll give you an example. So we sell thousands and thousands of third-party products, accessories, uh, whether it is hard drives, whether it is uh, even headphones and monitors and lots of things that are, you know, serviced and provided by other companies. And those are all managed automatically. So it's in a database, it's a data-driven process, so you don't have to worry about it. But if you multiply those, into the number of countries, suddenly the numbers look staggeringly big. Now, having said that, it still is a pretty mm -hmm. big number of uh, pages. And clearly, there is a process for us to manage level one, level two, level three type of pages, whole page on, right? We look at the efficacy. There is periodic checks on usage of the pages. Uh, there's teams basically managing content across the site, across the countries. Uh, obviously, there is a strategy for how many layers of uh, product pages we want to have. We look at data to understand who is using it, how often are they using it, and things that are not being used, you know, obviously they get culled as, as time goes by. Uh, but more and more, it is clear to us that we need a very cohesive data strategy uh, for, um, for managing content. The, the formats customers prefer for content is changing. A uh, lot more focus on videos, a lot more focus on how to do things uh, through a short form video. Uh, even content that you provide in terms of words are very, very succinct and to the point. So you let customers pull the data, pull the content, as opposed to publishing everything and letting the customer kind of go through stuff. Clearly, it takes a lot of time and effort. And the key is to make sure that your systems uh, from the product management all the way to what the customer actually sees on the glass all managed in a way that makes sense. And that clearly is a challenge because you've got a lot of legacy systems and what somebody puts in as they're designing a product may be markedly different from the marketing content that somebody needs to see in order to make a decision on a sale. So you really have to figure out the process, uh, streamline it. Uh, you need to make sure periodically you, you look for paradigm shifts. Uh, you need to understand demographics. I mean, 70% of the population that's going to be in the workforce is going to be millennials. And I can tell you that they are not very interested in reading a lot of stuff. Uh, they yep. prefer much short form formats and they like videos and things like that. So if you're not connecting with them and your engagement is not right, I think you're going to have a problem in the long run. So I think the page count is less of a problem 
than relevance. And I think that what we really are trying to do is to figure out how to be relevant and drive uh, content that truly drives engagement with our audience. That completely makes sense. Are there certain trends that you see coming that Lenovo is preparing for when it comes to, like you said, videos, preparing for millennials? What kind of things are on your radar right now that you're yeah, preparing for the future? So I'd say a couple of things on that, right? We are seeing a pretty significant shift in demographics. So we see a bimodal distribution. And by that, we see a lot more older people. And then we see a lot more younger people. And the number of people in between actually is very low. So you would see like very young people, 60 to 70% of the population will be in the, in the 20 to 30 age group uh, going forward. So which means that these are native millennials. These are generation uh, Gen Zs who basically are native digitally. And therefore, their expectations and how they consume data and how they consume information is very, very different. So we have to really worry. I think everybody needs to worry if you're online as to how they are going to be part of your uh, community, how you're going to engage with them, uh, how are you going to keep their interest in the products that you have. Part of the challenge is that they are so sophisticated and are pretty much, in my mind, no nonsense in terms of technology that it's highly unlikely that they are going to support anything that is cumbersome uh, or verbose or anything that basically takes away from efficiency in terms of how they kind of deal with online content. And so I think the big challenge is for companies to truly make that shift of saying, look, this was the audience in the past. They had a very different predisposition to how they looked at data and how they analyze things. And then there is this new generation that truly is looking at content differently. Now, the key point will be when they start truly having money in their pockets and they're going to be in positions where they're going to be making decisions for companies in terms of purchasing technology decisions. And many of them already are making those decisions. And then if you are not able to engage with them appropriately, I think that you have a challenge. So Truly trying to figure out how to build a relationship with the Gen Z millennial audience, I think is key. Uh, we are definitely looking at a couple of segments where we believe that that's an area that we need to really get good at, which is uh, gamers who are uh, basically a big part of the online ecosystem. They, they are very sophisticated. They know exactly what they want. They are very community driven. Uh, they're very content driven. And so, uh, we, you know, the proxy for us, at least in my mind, is, look, you got to figure out how to engage these people online because you will learn from that, that set of experiences. And if you are, as a brand, not able to work that in your favor, it becomes increasingly challenging, I think, for the brand to have relevance in the future. And so we are really focused on gamers. We believe that we have to cater to them end-to-end from content, from products, online experiences, capabilities giving them access to a broader set of products and portfolio, game titles, uh, being able to give them subscription services and other things. And then the second you know, audience that's really, really important are students. A big part of students are going to be online. And quite frankly, this COVID crisis kind of brings out the issue much more readily, where you see high schoolers, pretty much all schoolers, including colleges, basically offering courses online and everybody's online studying. Uh, I can tell you that uh, it looked like a big deal when it happened, but we have been thinking about this thing for several years now, and uh, this crisis obviously has accelerated that thinking even more. But the reality is that this is going to be the new norm. And what is interesting is that a lot of people that are online students 
because of the fact that uh, for a thousand years, we have always told students that they need to go to a school and be an apprentice and study and learn because they can find a job. And now companies have come out and said, look, you don't really need a college degree to get a job. You can get all you need is knowledge. And if you're good at something, then we'll figure out a way to test you and you'll be fine. You don't need a formal degree. And we think that that trend will accelerate in the coming years. And I think that universities and colleges and institutions will figure out how to deal with it. And then at the same time, people like us, brands, will have to figure out how to engage this audience because they're looking for information, they're looking for technology, they're looking for solutions. And the question is, can we provide them solutions and technology that make learning online easier for our students? That is the audience. Obviously, we make, we make PCs and we make phones and we make you know, monitors and all these things that really are part of the technology solution that enables people to learn online. And therefore, we believe that we should figure out how to engage with this audience more meaningfully online and in a direct way so that we understand their needs much more concretely. When it comes to thinking about this new generation and they're, you know, like you said, no nonsense. They want things quick. The website better be super quick. They better be able to buy fast. They have a, I'd say, a higher risk tolerance when it comes to ordering online. As long as there's a good return policy, they're probably okay with just buying right away and hoping for the best. How are you thinking about your retail strategy? Because like you said, a lot of people in the past have been used to going into stores and trying things out. Do you see that being something in the future, especially with COVID? It's kind of seems like a good forcing function where it's pushing more people online and to just try it instead of having to experience it in person. Are you all shifting your thoughts around that area? Well, I mean, I think uh, COVID clearly will be an outlier. It will accelerate uh, the, tra- the digital transformation. But I still think that retail will have a pretty important a important place and role to play uh, in the long run. But it will get redefined. And, and for our part, I mean, we're doing a couple of things. We are trying to figure out how to help our resellers, how to help uh, our retail partners, and quite frankly, trying to connect offline and online in a meaningful way. So where we own stores like in China and in India and other places, we're trying to figure out how to connect the online experience to the offline experience so that people can buy products online. They can go to the shop and order it online there. Uh, So really trying to figure out how to manage the customer experience a little bit more readily. Now, having said that, I think the more interesting transformation that's happening is really trying to connect the social uh, the retail and online together. And, And if we can at some point get the mobile piece to work, then it becomes a very, very interesting uh, value proposition for the customer because you truly have the customer for the whole cycle. So if they're outside, we kind of know where they are and therefore we can give them recommendations if they're interested in looking at a product. Uh, if they're online, obviously they uh, they can do things online, but if they do stuff uh, on their phone, uh, we can actually translate some of those things meaningfully to their desktop. And therefore we kind of make it very, very easy experientially for them to experience a, a good brand experience. So we don't have to act surprised when uh, the same person is in two different places or has two different you know, ways they, they connect to the brand. We just need to figure out how to connect those pieces. And I think that these are the types of business model shifts that we will see accelerated as, um, as we go through this crisis and beyond. I think that people are finally trying to figure out how we're going to connect this. I mean, look, Amazon has already done some of this with uh, with the, what they have done with Whole Foods and the Prime. And so they've kind of figured out how to connect the store to Prime users and the online stuff. So the blueprint is there. And I think that most companies are doing some stuff. 
but I think that you're right. I mean, it's going to get accelerated as this crisis progresses. Yeah, I think connecting those platforms is key to yeah, making sure you understand the customers and can deliver value to them wherever they're at. Are there any technologies that you guys are experimenting with to try and connect that online to offline to social and mobile? Yeah, I mean, in some place, it, it depends from place to place and it depends on the company's footprint, right? I mean, in China, obviously, I think we are the most progressed in terms of the uh, technology piece. Uh, you know, we have a substantial online merge with offline footprint, which connects, you know, WeChat and an online cloud and uh, our application layers, uh, which allows our customers to actually be uh, connected fully with the brand. And, uh, you know, it actually connects all the retailers also to the brand in a very, very meaningful way. So that uh, is, I think, the aspirational model for everybody. We have a very different model in Japan, as an example, where we are connected in kiosks in the, in the retail store. Uh, that's connected to the online world. Uh, in uh, Taiwan, as an example, we have an offline store uh, that we are connected to. Uh, in India, it's the same thing. It's an offline, online model. So, yeah, I mean, look, the business model is different from uh, different, different country to country. Uh, uh, it also depends on who is innovating more and what's the landscape look like uh, in the country. So it's not one size fits all, uh, you know, I, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that privacy, as an example, is a key yep. consideration in some countries and some countries, they're more relaxed. Uh, so it just depends also on some of the privacy laws that enable customers to share information more freely versus some others where you can't. But uh, my sense is that depending on the country and depending on the business, uh, you will see hybrid models emerge. They already are emerging and some will have much more traction than others. But I would see that a lot of uh, I would see a lot of partnerships being formed between online companies and offline retailers to really uh, manage the customer experience to be much more smoother and much more productive going forward. Got it. I saw that Lenovo is leaning more into focusing on the consumer and their needs, becoming a more consumer first company. Is there certain data points that you all are using to meet your consumer? better than you were before? Or where in that end-to-end -end consumer journey do you see the most room for growth or improvement? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lenovo's history and its heredity has always been a product company. I mean, we have some of the best brands in the world, but whether it's ThinkPad, Yoga, Moto, uh, SystemX, I mean, these are all brands that are at the top of the game when it comes to their specific categories. Yep, I used a ThinkPad at Google. I love my ThinkPad. <laughs> well, there you go. And, and that's, that's, I mean, nine out of 10 people that I speak to in the business world would tell me the same thing. I used to mm -hmm. use a ThinkPad before I worked for Lenovo long, long time ago as when I was a consultant for Deloitte. So, um, and, and there's plenty of people who actually use a ThinkPad because it's, it's an iconic brand. Uh, so we always have been a, a company of engineers historically, but as we move into the internet era and as digital becomes more mainstay, it is absolutely critical for us to really understand uh, what our end users look like, what they're doing with our products, how do we collect feedback that's more direct, uh, and truly really understand and have a, a pulse on what the customer sentiment is for our brands. Uh, it becomes extremely difficult for us to get uh, feedback more directly as uh, from an indirect channel because of the fact that you know we don't really talk to the customer directly. We have to uh, remain and collect information in an indirect fashion and depending on the privacy laws and other things, it becomes very, very complicated for us to collect information. Having said that, 
you know, three or four years ago as a company, we decided that it was such an existential reason for us to really start thinking about customers first and truly trying to figure out how to connect with them uh, and drive digital transformation that we decided to start measuring all of our customer segments, whether it's direct or indirect, uh, in either use proxies or direct measures. But mostly the entire company um, has been on a net promoter score basis and trying to understand how our customers value our products and our services and what they actually think about the brand. So, well, you know, our, our employees and our executives get paid based on a customer satisfaction metric. At one point, it was actually even punitive uh, in terms of how they got paid. Uh, so we take um, this very, very seriously. And the transformation is clearly on its, you know, it's much more evolved than what it was three years ago. And now pretty much every group in the company has a customer-focused metric, whether it's product development, supply chain, e-commerce, or our global accounts customers. So everybody is measured on a customer-centric uh, metric which allows us to then drive the focus that's needed. And it's, it's one of the top priorities for our COO, our CEO, my boss, who basically runs all of the PC plus the IDG group. Uh, it's a key focus for him. So clearly, uh, it's something that we will take very, very seriously. And we are all trying to evolve to this one metric uh, that we can look at and say, are we making absolute progress as a company or not? Got it. So a lot of times metrics can actually have unintended consequences where maybe someone's trying to meet that metric and they're not doing the best thing to meet that. Did you see that when you guys were thinking about creating that customer metric? Did you see anything go wrong where you're like, oh, that's actually not a good one to rely on? Any learnings throughout that process? Yeah, I mean, look, e-commerce, we have, uh, we have been measuring uh, customer satisfaction for the last, I don't know, 13 years or so. So as soon as I joined the company two years into it, I kind of figured out that, look, we need some form of getting feedback from our customers. So we have a very very robust and mature process for e-commerce where we've been collecting roughly 20,000 uh, customer feedback from a survey that we do online. Uh, so we have, we have had a model for a long time that gives us the feedback. The biggest challenge always, I think, is trying to figure out correlation of what factors will drive it. I think that's been the big controversy. So is it delivery metrics? Is it quality metrics? Is it uh, product design? Is it uh, the call center? So there is a ton of data and we have regressed the data to find out the top factors and those factors keep changing. What are the top factors right now that you see? So what we see is product quality is undeniably the number one uh, number one uh, thing that the customers actually value. Of course. Uh, yeah. I think customers truly value delivery. Um, so delivery times and making sure that you're keeping your commitment in terms of products. Uh, they definitely value help um, in the call center uh, as a metric. Um, so, I mean, there's probably a list of about 20 that we track. Uh, and the, the big ones really are product quality, delivery, out-of-the-box experience, those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, service as an example, right? When we do surveys of uh, customers on their service, I mean, that's a pretty important uh, part of their feedback. Uh, but the purchase survey that we do is more around the purchasing experience. And customers uh, are not shy and they give you exactly, uh, you know, what, what is important to them. And the one thing that we do find is that some of the metrics are difficult to move. Like product quality, as an example, I mean, Denovo's product quality is very high. So it's always in the 90% range. And for us to move a percentage point on product quality is very, very difficult. But there are several others where 
like delivery and other metrics that float a lot more. And there's there's ability for us to go change that if we are focused on trying to drive certain changes. So the key for us is to say, uh, which are the metrics that we can influence uh, that the team can actually take actions, whether it's on the website, whether it's on trying to do training, or whether it's really trying to figure out how we message things to the customer differently, you know, do proactive phone calls, whatever the, whatever the things are that we do. But the key is to really identify those things that truly can be moved meaningfully, and we can put energy behind it and then keep moving. Uh, you know, last year, we moved our CSAT score, our, our NPS score by almost 35%. So that's pretty substantially, you know, a good jump in terms of uh, effectiveness, right? And that's because we identified a few things that we felt were, you know, compelling. We went, you know, had a business management system around it. We made IT changes. So all those things contributed to us kind of focusing and kind of moving things in a certain direction. So I think that's the key when it comes to comes to customer centricity. I mean, the challenge is that the customers are not standing still. Uh, their expectations are going up every single day. So you have to do a lot more to make meaningful progress. So you can't just stop. You have to continually change and continually improve the processes. And that's, that's always tricky because you have to really be at it and you got to use data to really understand what's changed, what's moving, what's the new irritant. You have to do social listening. You have to really start scanning your uh, data that you get from your customers to figure out what's the new irritant and how do you kind of manage those. So it, it is certainly not an easy process. It's a very challenging process, but it is also something I think that is very, very important if you as a brand need to keep your customers happy. Yeah, I completely agree. If you were to point to the larger theme of being able to improve your customer satisfaction score, what was the larger thing that you changed or adjusted that made it so you could improve that score by, I think you said, 35%. Yeah, so the one big thing that we changed was, you know, we have always had a very high amount of customization on the website. So ThinkPads, as you know, can be customized. And obviously, you know, a customized product takes a longer time than if you had something in stock. So we have traditionally had a lot of our ThinkPads customized. And we made a conscious choice to really figure out how to keep stock of some of our high-flying products or the fast-selling products. And so that is a pretty significant shift because when you have to ship something centrally from a one warehouse versus you have to ship products from a warehouse or a manufacturing facility to a distribution center and manage inventory, it obviously is not as efficient as trying to run something directly from the factory. But we made the choice to move some of the products to local distribution to speed up delivery of our products. And that definitely helped. And we had some issues with... Um, supply we are having some industry-wide constraints on some of the supply and therefore this whole process of managing inventory locally really really helped us kind of manage customer expectations a little bit better than what we're used to so that is one example of what we did that really helped now if we also make a number of changes on the website from messaging whether it's a credit card processing screen or whether it's a product page or whether it's a configurated design uh, any number of things that we feel are irritating customers, we have a list of maybe 500 items that we work through at any given time. And everybody is kind of going through those things and fixing it. And, and then that incrementally adds a little bit of help. So, but the big ticket items are always around supply, uh, product quality, uh, call center management, uh, pricing, uh, you know, promotion challenges, 
uh, our customers actually, you know, some customers see discounts that are different and are we managing those correctly? So it really is uh, those big buckets that we want to make sure that we are focused on, we're fixing, and ultimately the customer feels like we are being responsive to their needs. That's really fun hearing how you're able to drill in on a few of those things and shift customer perception and happiness so much. Are there certain metrics that you use when it comes to, like you said, looking at what's irritating the customers or where the websites may be failing in certain areas? Is there a set of metrics that you look at maybe bi-weekly or weekly with your team to see how things are doing? And if so, what are those metrics? Yeah, so, you know, when you talk about metrics, I mean, we have a website, you know, a technical side of looking at metrics for the website. So, which is uh, the IT organization that basically looks at all of the technology stuff, which is what does the response time look like? What is your mobile performance? What's the page performance? 404 errors, page not found, the timeout errors on your checkout page, blah, 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 blah. So there's probably like a hundred things that somebody looks at every single day. And then we manage those by exception, right? So we know what the numbers are. We are there's somebody constantly looking at those. Then there is the website feedback mechanism, which is when a customer comes online, something like Opinion Lab or uh, a, a survey mechanism that basically allows customers to give you feedback. So we randomly select customers that uh, are on the website. We actually give them uh, the opportunity to respond to their experience that day. And they, you know, we collect experience on uh, their research process, their buying process, the website, complexity, blah, blah, blah. So we get a ton of feedback from our customers on that particular thing. And then, like I mentioned to you, we have this thing called the um, the online ordering experience and the purchase experience. So we get 20,000 or so responses every two weeks from all these countries, which we analyze. Then we obviously have social listening where we actually listen to what the customer is saying. And then there is a comment section where customers give us comments and we use uh, some form of AI or stuff to actually glean through all that stuff to really get the sentiment analysis and big, big ticket items that are coming back. And we, take all of these things into a composite score that then allows us to go look at and say, where are we falling short? What are the benchmarks? Um, what, what's the threshold? What's the competitive benchmark that we should be looking at for each of these categories, best in class? And then we benchmark ourselves and figure out what actions we need to take based on what I just mentioned, the regression analysis to say, okay, these things actually have a meaningful impact to the customer experience and therefore, we got to go figure out how to remove people who are giving us, you know, ones, twos, and threes. How do we increase our nines and tens? And then everybody in between, how do we move them up uh, to basically minimize the customer irritation, uh, irritants that we have in the system? So it's a very systematic process. There is a team that basically looks at it. There is a supply chain element that's very real. There is a services element. There is a phone sales element. There is a chat sales element. So it's a very, very complex a set of metrics that basically transcends all of the functional groups that have a small stake in that experience. As the customer goes from the website research to buying the product, getting it serviced, uh, talking to a customer rep. So we we take the end-to-end customer journey and figure out all the points at which they touch something and figure out how to measure them so that we have an accurate understanding of where the irritant is and what we need to do to make it better. Got it. So... I know when it comes to giving feedback, I go on websites all the time and it's asking me to do a survey, give feedback. And at least for me, I don't normally do it. I just X off and I try and find what I want. How are you incentivizing 
these potential buyers or buyers to give you the feedback and take these surveys and get them to do what you want? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to do it in a way that doesn't bias the sample. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm most worried about, is that I don't want to incent people to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, so what I've noticed is that the core customers, they are actually always very vocal, especially if they are a brand loyalist. So we get a steady stream of feedback from brand loyalists, uh, which is great because I think they are finicky and they are, you know, brand zealots and they really, really take, you know, pride in making sure that they're providing feedback on things that they like and things that they don't like. And quite frankly, it shapes perception and product strategy in many ways because, you know, they it, it's a big group of customers. Uh, the tricky part is, the random customer or the customer that truly hasn't built a relationship with us but just bought something, you know, those folks, we have to figure out how to drive the subscription into the process a little bit more meaningfully. We periodically do a 5% off coupon. Uh, we periodically send out emails to people who have bought products. We always send out emails to people who buy products from us saying, you know, give us feedback, tell us what, you know, um, what is it that we have done well and what, what are the things that we haven't done well. On the phone, obviously, we have more success because we, we get a chance to talk to people. But it's a combination of things. Uh, in the past, I remember like five, six years ago, we even run like contests that basically gave prizes for people to actually participate. And then we kind of reduced that a little bit because it kind of may tend to kind of bias the sample a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, look, online reviews is the other one. We have a very robust online review process uh, that we have on the website. So we get a ton of online reviews for particular products also. So we use that sometimes to also incent people to give us more feedback. So there isn't like a one-size-fits-all answer for this. It just depends. Again, in some countries, we get a lot more feedback than some others. And so countries where we don't get as much feedback, we try to figure out what's the right way. Can we leverage our community? Can we leverage our brand and other things? Can we gamify it? Uh, so this. There's lots of technologies and lots of strategies, depending on which country and which part of the world you're in, to incentivize the customer to actually engage more readily. In, in some countries, it's challenging, just as it is challenging in, uh, uh, in countries like Europe, where you know, trying to get around some of the privacy laws uh, is also, you know, can be tricky. So it's, it's a balance, uh, but we have tried discounts, newsletters, contests, uh, reviews and rating, you know, promoting them. Having said all that, I do believe that building a community and trying to nurture that community is probably the easiest way for us to get more and more feedback, which is kind of what we are trying to do is to try and figure out how to engage these customers more meaningfully over the longer period of time beyond their purchasing, but more connecting them with the brand. And then I think that that solves some of the feedback issues because I think we'll get a much higher response rate when that happens. Yeah, I've heard a lot of brands leaning towards that community aspect, at least from the people that we've had on the show. What are some of the initiatives that you guys are doing to create that community? Well, I won't give away all the secrets, but... Um, <laughs> Just give us a couple, come on. Uh, so the big uh, the big communities that we focus on, obviously one is SMB. Uh, SMB, we, we fundamentally believe are underserved. And I think that there is going to be a lot more SMBs in the work, uh, workplace going forward, because I think a lot of the millennials and Gen Zs are very interested and are, are very entrepreneurial. Uh, with the advent of technology kind of progressing the way it's progressing and digital technologies becoming more ubiquitous with 
with the online space, I, I do believe that you will see a lot of internet businesses springing up. Uh, it's not no longer very difficult for somebody to actually uh, open a business or start a business if they have a good idea. So you will see a significant number of people actually coming online uh, in the SMB space. And we are obviously very aware that we need to provide them an experience, a community, and a set of resources that make them productive and useful. Uh, you know, useful in the sense that we give them something that is useful for them to be more productive. So part of our challenge is to try and figure out what is really important for them. So we definitely think community is important, but the what I think is very, very important. And, and the question is, how do we drive relevance? Uh, what is really important for the SMB customer as they are online? beyond the products that they buy from us. How do we get them more out of technology? How do we get them more out of their work, their productivity? And how do we make sure that they're ultimately successful as they are part of our ecosystem? So I'll give you an example. You know, maybe, maybe they can hear from other SMB customers who are probably struggling with similar challenges. Uh, maybe the, the ability to belong to a community that has other people doing similar things or at least dealing with broad themes that they're dealing with, money, uh, you, know, you know, resources, training, those things become important. So the question is, can we provide some of those things to our SMB customers that make their lives a little bit easier and therefore their affinity for our brand a little bit higher? So that's one thing that we're definitely doing for SMBs. A lot of work to be done. I mean, we are just in the very, very early stages, but we do believe that uh, a well thought out long term strategy will definitely help our ecosystem and our customers. Uh, likewise, we will we will be thinking about students and uh, gamers and trying to figure out what we can do meaningfully to nurture the relationship we have with them. Got it. Have you shifted your strategy around online learning, students, gamers since COVID started? Did you guys have to kind of go into a quick pivot mode to start doing something different or planning for a different future than what you were maybe planning for six months ago? Well, we started this strategy two years ago, um, haven't changed much. And so therefore we do have a leg up because we have been thinking about this thing for a while. Um, COVID just made it uh, a little bit more easier to sell uh, and get traction. The, the strategy we, were, we are on uh, has basically been in place for a while because we have been building IT capabilities and some of those things that we need to service our customers. It's uh, This is not something you can just spin up in a day, right? I mean, these days, much, much more longer term. And, you know, there's plenty of partnerships and relationships you've got to go attack. And so it's, it's not certainly something that you can just copy or you can just do. It, it is capital intensive. You need to put money into it. You need to do a lot of development. Um, you need to really start thinking about the strategy much more clearly. Uh, so it's, it's certainly not something that we thought about yesterday. Uh, but uh, I think there is a lot more that we need to do to be relevant and to co drive this to a scale. Cool. So I've heard that you like behavioral economics. I was wondering yes. what, <laughs> yeah, I, I watched a few videos. I'm like, oh, me too. Uh, what principles have been useful or how have they shaped the digital experiences that you build at Lenovo? Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything that, you know, you do on a website uh, or you do on business, you know, kind of lends itself to, some of the principles from behavioral economics. And some of them that are really interesting, I mean, I became a fan of behavioral economics with Dan Ariely, who basically is local here at Duke. And we had Dan come to campus and speak to our people a couple of times. This was like maybe seven, eight years ago. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've been a big follower of it, and clearly, what I understand from it is that people uh, people are predictable, and they can be predictably irrational uh, in how they make decisions. So sometimes, you know, common sense is probably is overrated, <laughs> believe it or not, when it comes to some of the design principles and some of the things that we do from a merchandising and marketing standpoint. Big couple of things for me is. Look, I mean, people want to compare things, right? I mean, and they want to, they, they, they freeze when, you, when they are not able to compare things that are similar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you give them dissimilar things and ask them to compare it, uh, they always rationalize it to something that is a common denominator. So let's, uh, as an example, you want to compare an apple to an orange. Obviously, they are, they are very different fruits. Uh, and to ask them to really say which one you like more becomes a preference issue more than a rational exercise. And so if you truly ask them to assign value to it, more likely they are going to say an apple costs a dollar and an orange costs 50 cents. So maybe the apple is 2x better than the orange. I mean, that would be the natural way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Now, when you tell them to compare a PC of one kind to a PC of a completely different kind, they, they are likely to be completely lost because they just are not able to understand the fundamental differences between them. Or if you take them an inordinate amount of time for them to actually compare the products. And so what they do is they start thinking about price. And price is not necessarily the best way to make a decision on something that basically is going to be your technology partner for a few years and going to make you productive and the kind of things that you need to do. So I've realized that, look, you have to really enable a comparison of products uh, in a much more meaningful way. So make sure the customers don't have to really go out of their way to think about how to compare products. Obviously, challenging when we have so many products coming out at this breakneck speed that some of the technology cannot keep up. But to me, comparing things is an important paradigm, in my opinion. It brings back the memories when I used to open up a bunch of tabs to compare products before the company started shifting to that comparison model. But I do still think there's a long way to go when it comes to especially comparing tech. Because, I mean, when I'm looking at a computer and it's saying, here's all the specs of this computer, a lot of those things I don't even know you know, why would I want to upgrade? Whereas if it said, well, this means that you'll be able to store this many pictures versus this, or you'll have a much faster internet speed, or, you know, remember how your computer's working really slowly when you try and open up Photoshop, like it won't do that anymore. It would be nice to start seeing a more consumer perspective of like, what does this do for me? Instead of just being like, it's this many terabytes and, you know, all the technical specs to it. Are you all thinking about that kind of shift or how, how are you incorporating that? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, definitely comparison uh, of products is a big thing. You know, search, uh, you know, how you do search comparison is a big thing. So we are absolutely focused on it. And to make things worse, I mean, the mobile phone factor doesn't facilitate very readily comparison of complex things. So we have Mm -hmm. to figure out more elegant and meaningful ways in which we can have people compare products on a small phone factor like a phone. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, clearly very, very important on top of our list, uh, always challenging, always evolving. So yeah, I mean, we, we have to go figure out how to do that. Cool. One other thing that I would tell you when it comes to behavioral economics and behavioral science is uh, bias, the role of bias. Um, and I think that this is a big one. People generally, when they are making decisions, executives like me included, you know, we make decisions based on anecdotal evidence, based on what we have done. And we take that uh, size n of one, and we try to generalize, hypothesize our theory based on a bad experience or a good experience, and we extrapolate that to the population and end up driving everybody crazy and not 
looking at numbers the right way and ignoring numbers and making decisions that are suboptimal. So, you know, the the work by Kenny Han and Saval Kennyman and Kenny Han and uh, some of the work that the Israelis have done, especially because it seems like that's where all of the cool stuff is coming from on behavioral economics uh, from the Hebrew University. The work is really, really telling us not to be biased and to suspend judgment and to really focus on what the data tells us and to pay attention to not fall into the trap of the bias. So, so it, it takes a while and it takes a lot of effort, but I think it's a good reminder for us to really focus on managing and minimizing our biases so that we can make optimal decisions that affect our customers in a very positive way. Completely agree. Do you all do trainings at Lenovo, whether it's for the executives or the employees when it comes to how to you know, create surveys and look at the data in a non-biased way and collect uh, data from certain people where it's not biased? Do you do anything around that to teach those principles? Well, I mean, I'm kind of, I also teach uh, sometimes. So You're the lead in it. <laughs> I have been pushing this very heavy and hard with my teams. And obviously, a lot of the executives read these books, so it's not lost on them. Uh, but look, I mean, because we have such a huge direct customer-facing interface, the the focus on the online space has to be much inordinately higher because the, I think the impact is much, much higher in the direct interface. So so we are definitely driving this. A lot of our people are classically trained. Uh, they all kind of go to classic UX, UI training. Uh, but more and more, I also have started relying on quantitative data at scale for making decisions rather than opinions. So uh, I am not, and my team hates me for this, but I'm not a big fan of qualitative information. Uh, I would much rather not ask people anything and just look at the data and interpret the data and start making decisions because people say one thing and they do another. Yep. And it's it's not a new notion. Every, I think a lot of people know this. And at scale, when you're talking about tens of millions of records, uh, I think the data doesn't lie. If, in fact, if the data says that, then that's what we should do because it kind of services a majority of our customers positively. So uh, that's the other principle that I use is don't ask, just look at the data and try and make decisions based on the data, try to understand the data and then design your tests and your experiments based on what you see, rather than asking a bunch of people in a panel and they tell you some stuff and I'm sure it works in some places, but I am always skeptical when that happens because I'm worried about bias. Mm -hmm. Have you? Do you think from your experience, a lot of companies are still focusing on that qualitative data and it's actually leading them down the wrong path or you know, they're creating either new products or new website experiences that are probably going to fail because they're using that qualitative data? I am sure people are, but I think people are not, you know, people also, uh, are, you know, they all read these same things. But I think there is, there is probably... Uh, enough anecdotal evidence that suggests that there's a lot of people who still use those principles. I don't know the exact number and any guess that I would venture would be wrong, so I would not <laughs> venture it. Uh, but my sense is that, yeah, I mean, look, it, it requires activism, like for some of the people and the executives to actually read the books, get interested, get uh, excited, and then drive everybody to kind of follow it and understand it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a field that's still kind of evolving. So it takes effort, right? And then the infrastructure that's needed to do at scale testing and A-B testing, they're not cheap, it's expensive. So the, I think the question is how many people are uh, driving digital transformation? How many people are digitally savvy? How many companies are? And my sense is that that's a very small number. I think everybody's talking about digital transformation now because of all the issues that are around them. But I can tell you 
that the number of com companies that are digitally savvy after you take out some of the tech companies and the internet companies, it's very small. Traditional mm -hmm. companies have a pretty big gap. So my sense is that they're not probably using it as much. Yeah, completely agree. So to zoom out a bit for the last couple of minutes, um, in the world of e-commerce, are there any big disruptions you see coming or, uh, yeah, what do you see in the future that you guys are planning for? Well, I think this, uh, this whole transformation, this whole crisis actually points to the fact that the digital transition will be much faster. I think that people have realized a couple of things. One, travel may be overrated. People have realized that education, going to school, sitting in classrooms, uh, maybe overrated. People are going to realize that working from home is uh, not a big deal, not such a big deal. And so I think the workforce productivity, the online education, travel as a paradigm, and how companies operate, uh, all of that will, I think, will become ripe for disruption. So you will see increasingly technology solutions, practices, that's going to append a lot of the kind of work practices and the educational practices. So that's happening, that's going to happen, and it's going to accelerate. Clearly, I think that this will also boost uh, some of the technology things like AR, VR, IoT, or, or, you know, both from home and from work. I think it'll accelerate some of those things because it'll, it'll be a natural extension of some of the things that, are, that people are doing. I think the move to cloud is going to get accelerated because I think everybody wants access to everything. 5G, as 5G comes, I think a lot of these things that are laborious today might experience a complete complete revival in terms of and complete uh, transformation when it comes to speed and feed and what's possible. So I think that the time is ripe for us to get much more digitally connected. Uh, the last one is mobile in terms of what's going on with mobile and how mobile is going to become uh, get a face over as, as 5G comes on. So It'll be interesting to see how uh, retail, uh, how millennials and Gen Zs, uh, how SMBs, all of these groups of people that make up a pretty significant part of the population. I think students, gamers, and SMBs probably are about 40% of the world's population. So you'll see that there's going to be a significant shift quite rapidly in the next three to five years. Uh, and, and there's going to be a considerable amount of disruption that will happen as a result of this. You know, you will see winners and losers. There's going to be probably a long list of people who are going to go out of business if they're not able to adapt quickly to some of the changes that are happening. Uh, the companies that get it naturally will have outs, you know, uh, much bigger gains, which will, which will make them much more competitive and difficult to beat. So you will see a lot of winners and losers emerging out of this uh, whole crisis. And as the digital evolution continues, in a significant way. Yeah, love that answer. So before we move on to the lightning round, which is where we ask a question and you have one minute or less to answer, are there any other high-level thoughts or words of wisdom that you want to drop in the podcast? Well, I, I just tell the people who are in this space, the e-commerce space, that their time has come finally. So they should just buckle up and help their companies and see where, where the right goes. I love that. All right. So the lightning round, like I said, brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud is where I will ask a question and you have one minute or less to answer it. Are you ready, Ajit? Okay. <laughs> All right. What's up next in your travel destinations after we're allowed to travel? I would like to go to Cuba because I'm running very low on my cigars. <laughs> wow. That sounds cool. All right. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Ah, I just finished Ozark. It's a good one. I've been watching Heist. Uh, so maybe I'll keep watching that. Cool. 
what's up next for well is it lunchtime there i guess a little bit past lunch what's yes. up next for dinner <laughs> dinner um i had cooked on the weekend some lamb curry and some um, roti so i'm going to just reheat that and eat it yum what's up next on your podcast list or your reading list ah reading i'm reading the million dollar whale billion dollar whale what's that one about it's about this dude wall streeter who basically flees the million dollars a billion dollars um <laughs> right under the nose of wall street and uh big finance people and everybody else in the world so it's 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 like the what is it movie the dicaprio movie the oh which one is that the wolf of wall street <laughs> the wolf of wall street so it's it's yeah. loosely like a character like that um so i i'm just a quarter into it it's uh, it's it's unbelievably engaging and interesting oh cool yeah i have to look into that yeah you should it's 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 pretty cool yeah you have a few you said a few more books that you're yeah well i mean i still haven't finished uh, uh homo sapiens and some of the <laughs> uh some of the books that he had written uh, so i'm i'm still trying to figure out when i can finish those with being small awesome all right what's your favorite tool or technology that you're either learning right now or you're thinking about implementing in the future or it could be a skill technology i mean we we are constantly thinking about technology and the one the big technology that we are thinking about is how to drive the subscriptions uh business so it really is trying to figure out how to give customers the convenience of buying something as they pay for use uh, because i think it's becoming very very clear that the reason why people like netflix and adobe and some of our other customers and clients are successful it's because people are able to pay and and in this covid era i think that business model is very appropriate you know people don't want to spend a lot of money up front so trying to figure out how to make their lives a little easy awesome yeah i definitely see that area blowing up uh, the subscription business all right the last big one so it sounds like you guys are uh, doing a great job of staying ahead of expectation and your competition So in your opinion what's up next for e-commerce professionals Well I think the I I think it will become a key priority for most organizations uh, I think the digital transformation plus e-commerce um, if they are in a business that does e-commerce will become a major priority the key will be to try and figure out how to build out that strategy in a meaningful way if they are global I think they have to figure out how to make it more global if they are not global they have to figure out how to make it more local either way you really have to figure out what that business model will look like and it's not going to be easy because you have to deal with legacy systems and you have to deal with legacy operating processes and you have to deal with a legacy sales force and a legacy set of go to market strategies so trying to figure out how to meaningfully make sense of it like there's a there's a bunch of companies that are doing well but there's going to be a bunch of companies that will have to figure this thing out so they will be busy and they will be in demand Awesome. Love it. Any final plugs before we hop off the podcast? No, I just want to say that if you have good people that work for you, you should try and figure out how to hold on to them because it's going to get a mad rush to get to good people. Oh yeah, I completely agree with that one. All right, Ajit, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.